Hallelujah. So Lord, we pray that in these next few moments, that there wouldn't just be thoughts that will come into our minds, but a revelation that just impacts and deposits our hearts and changes us, oh God. Father, I know that you have great things you're desiring to do through the Elim movement. And Lord, I ask that you will help me faithfully bring that which I believe you've deposited and stirred in my heart, Lord, for what you want to do in the future of this precious body of people. Put your hand on your heart, would you, Lord? Speak to my heart. Lord, speak. The servants are listening tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to be here. It's a real honor to preach this evening. And I know anointing usually equates to miles traveled, and I'm sorry I've not flown here this evening. Um, tomorrow we're going to have the joy of uh, hearing uh, the sh initially scheduled speaker for this evening. But I, I just sense tonight that God wants to do something really precious in our hearts. And uh, if it's not miles that you travel for more anointing, then maybe it's hours, because we've traveled from the south, you know, we're from Devon. Anybody in from Devon? <laughs> but it's a great joy uh, to be here. And, I, and I've been wrestling with something in my spirit for this evening um, that I believe there's a pivot, a pivot moment in our hearts that the Lord wants to do something that could set you up and could set the movement up for some precious days that are ahead. Let me take you to a picture I had a few weeks ago. I saw a boxer in a fight and this boxer was really punching some good jabs against the enemy. He was causing some damage on his opponent. And as these jabs were going in, he thought, yes, victory is mine. There were a few little blows came back and forth every now and again, but it was going pretty much the way of the boxer. And then the enemy, the opponent, began to strike some blows. I thought, wow, that, I felt that. That hurt. So, begin to punch back. Caused some, you know, some serious punches back to the enemy. And then the blows came back again to the boxer. Just thought, wow, that almost winded me. And I saw the boxer looking around saying, sort of, how long is this round going to last? And the clock had gone. The clock had disappeared. There was no way of seeing how much length was left in the round. Just then, the opponent really hit right into the side of the boxer. I thought, wow, I felt that. So hit back. And the boxer was holding his own against the enemy. But just as he noticed the clock was gone, he began to notice that the cheering crowd was beginning to dissipate. And they were leaving the stadium. And the noise was certainly remarkably quieter than it was a few moments earlier. And the boxer thought, what's happened? And then a blow came and thought, wow, I really felt that. And the boxer's thinking, how long does this round last? Where's everybody going? Let's look to my corner and see if I can get some help from them because hopefully this round will finish soon and they'll be able to give me a bit of renewed energy for the next bout. Turned around and the corner was gone. The clock's gone, the crowd's gone, the corner's gone. And just then, there was a voice that came to the boxer and said, you're stronger than you think you are, box to win. And I felt God just reveal to me that's something of the season that I've been through, many of us have been through, it feels like many of those things that maybe we'd retreated to when times got difficult, that they seem to have been taken from us. 
But it's not because we are destined or doomed to lose. It's because God is saying there's a strength in his people. We're stronger than we think we are. And God is teasing a victory out of us. God is stripping away those things that have been the things we've lent on. You know, sometimes we felt we're on the ropes and we're not. We've just not dug deep into the deposits that God's placed within us. And we all know greater is he that's in us than is he that's in the world. But God is saying, I'm drawing it out of you, church. I'm bringing it out. And I believe that God is wanting to do that in us as a movement. And there's a, this is a bit of a precursor to what I'm gonna share in a moment, but I sense this is an important part of it, that there's a confidence rising in the fact that God is our strength, not our buildings, not our congregations, not our worship bands, not our Shekinah glory smoke machines, but that God is the strength of our heart and He's the one we can place our confidence in. A few years ago, I was invited to preach at, a, at an event in Italy and as I um, looked at my timetable and I added some events on a Friday morning in the UK and the event started in Italy on Friday evening and I, the only way I could make it work was to get a flight that was a connecting flight. So uh, I would fly from Birmingham to Paris and then from Paris to Pisa. And uh, as I got to the airport um, on the Friday late morning with my baggage and I went to the check-in desk and I said, um, you know, I've got a connecting flight. Can you assure me that the bag is going to automatically transfer from one flight to the next? They assured me that that would actually happen. So um, I said, thank you very much. And then they gave me two tickets. One of the tickets was from Birmingham to Paris. And the other ticket was from Paris to Pisa. Both of them had seat numbers on for the respective flights. So I get on the flight from Birmingham, it takes off on time, it lands on time in Paris, I make my way through all the security checks, and I quickly get to the departure gate for my new flight. And I had a bit of time to spare. So I pulled out my Kindle and I began to read a book. And as I was reading a book, just confident that I had plenty of time to go, confident my bag was gonna be on the new flight, there was an announcement on the tannoy. And it made reference to someone called Monsieur Pug. <laughs> I don't really speak French. There's a few basic words I know. Bonjour. Um, je m'appelle Marc. And j'ai onze ans. Surely you can get by in France by saying your name's Mark and you're 11 years of age. <laughs> so I'm thinking, that's an interesting name. Monsieur Pug. <laughs> I go back to my book. A few minutes later, the same voice, the same sound. Monsieur Pug. I, I actually laughed. I thought, this is, <laughs> this is really funny. And then I went back to my book. And then, as I say, I don't speak French, but I understand exasperation when I hear it. Because there was a third call for Monsieur Pug. And I had a moment and I thought, my surname is spelled P-U-G-H. I wonder if they think it's pronounced as Pug. So I went to the check-in desk and said, Bonjour, je m'appelle Marc, j'ai 11 ans. I think you're asking for Monsieur Pug? Well, thankfully, she spoke a bit of English. And she says, Ah, Monsieur Pug. No, no, Pew. Ah, Monsieur Pug. The flight has been overbooked and there's no space for you on the flight. But do not worry, sir, because we have arranged a really nice hotel for you for tonight and we're gonna give you some financial compensation for your inconvenience. And just then, another French word came to me. 
No, I don't know where you're going. No. No, 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 no. And she said, we. Oui. No. We. Oui. And... You know, I'd never been in that situation before. I didn't speak the language. I wasn't aware of the culture. I'd never been in a position like this. So my confidence didn't come from those things. I'm, I'm, I'm not a naturally confident person. I'm quite introverted. So, you know, I, normally I just sort of slide back at that moment. But there was one thing. There was one thing I had my confidence in. And I pulled it out of my pocket. Because I had a seat number on this ticket. And I said, we, oui. I'm getting on that flight. She asked me to take a seat. I heard her put another announcement on the tannoy. And a man, smartly dressed man in a business suit went to the desk and he spoke to her and she called me over and she said, this man, this gentleman, he is um, really pleased with the offer of the hotel and the compensation, so he's offered you his seat. Yes. It was a better seat than the one on my ticket. I got on the flight. I got a pizza on time. My bag was on the flight, because I know some of you thought that was going to be the story. And I got to the conference, and I spoke on the opening night, and it was all good. But where did my confidence come from? It wasn't my language, it wasn't my ability, it wasn't the fact I'd been there before. It was the fact that I knew I had an entitlement to be on that flight. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The pandemic does not change that one bit. Your circumstance does not change that one bit. The circumstances in your church, if you've lost people, if you've lost key people, it does not change the fact one bit that he who began a good work in you, you can put that in your pocket, you can hold it, and when the enemy tries to intimidate you, you can pull it out and say, I'm confident. To completion. God places before us as the Elam Church, I believe right now, a moment. It's a win or lose, rise or fall, shine or be in the shadows, a now or never moment. There's a satanic, satanic ferocity that's being unleashed on the earth, but God's church will prevail. He is building his hope-filled, life-giving, glory-revealing church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He hasn't promised that we'd return to a fixed point. He hasn't promised you that you'd get all the people back that you had pre-pandemic. He hasn't promised that the worship teams of the future will be better than the worship teams of the past. He hasn't promised those things, but he has promised that he will build his church. And he's assured us that he will be with us. See, I believe this is a bit of a Joshua moment. We know that Joshua said to the people, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are new wineskins appearing everywhere. There are new apostolic connections forming across the nation and the nations. There are new churches springing up. There are new relationships, new partnerships. They're everywhere. And we praise God for them. But God has not forgotten Elim. But he searches our heart. And listen to this question. He searches our heart to see if we have the heart to be the Elim monument or the Elim movement. And he searches each of our hearts. I believe there's a defining factor in your life and in my life that determines what we step into and what we hold back from. 
I believe that defining factor is our identity. I'm going to take you to a couple of verses from the Song of Songs. I preached from the Song of Songs in January in our church in Exeter, and as I read this verse in my studies, I knew that God wanted to speak at this event with these words. It says this, I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Cater, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards, so I could not care for myself, my own vineyard. Just stop there. We know this woman in this narrative, the young woman, so many ways, three ways we can really read the Song of Songs, but we're going to read it tonight in the context of the bride and the bridegroom. And this is the bride-to-be. Becoming mindful of the affections and the attentions of the group. And as she becomes aware of that attention and that affection, she is aware of a number of things about herself. She has been exploited by her brothers. She feels vulnerable. She feels insecure. She feels deeply inadequate. Now, it would not be right for me to carry on with the flow of what I'm about to say without talking about some of the challenge of reading this, not in the context that it's intended, because this is not about skin color or ethnicity. This is about exploitation and vulnerability. But one of the issues that's been shaken in the earth over the last few years has been that issue of injustice in the earth, racial injustice, ethnic injustice. And I wanted to take a moment because I know that Elam has done incredible work at just helping bring leadership to our churches and how we not just ensure that our churches are beautiful places of celebration, but that we are in a place that we can be a prophetic voice in a fragmented and broken society. Because the prophetic heart of God says that when He sees the earth broken in comparison to His intentions, that the church rises up and turns tables over. The church rises up and says, this is not right on my watch. But... As far as I'm aware, this is the first time we've gathered since we've witnessed and all searched our own hearts. And I hope I'm not stepping out of my remit this evening to take this moment to say the kingdom of God is made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every culture, the kingdom of God is made up of all of those places from across the world where the value of everybody is worth the blood of Jesus. And we'll gather around the throne and there'll be a flag that will say the kingdom of God is ours. We'll gather under that throne of the Lord and we'll worship. And that's our eternal destiny, and I've noticed something. I spent 10 years traveling around Elam churches, and I noticed something, that many of our Elam churches in cities and towns and villages are diverse. There's a, there feels like there's an anointing on Elam to be ethnically diverse. And I... I know that there have been those of us who've mentioned and referenced this and we've celebrated it, but I wonder if for a moment we could, in just a moment, stand and maybe get some house lights on. And I'm going to ask us to do two things. 
I'm going to ask us to circle around where we are. I'm going to ask you to look around. And then the second time we do it, I'm going to ask us to applaud and say, together, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we thank God that you're my brother, you're my sister. We thank God that he has brought you from the nations. He has brought a range of backgrounds, a range of cultures together. He has brought us to see the kingdom of God come and released on the earth, to see a glory-filled church revealing the heart of God. Can we have house lights on? Would you stand? And would you just silently for a moment, just look around the room. Just look in the eyes of young, old, men, women, black, white, range of ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures, England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, Republic of Ireland, from various nations of Europe, from the continents of Africa, from the Caribbean, from India, from South Asia, from the Far East, from the Middle East, all gathered together, the people of God, to say, God, let your glory fall in the earth. Lord, let your glory be revealed. God, we thank you. We thank you for the family of God. We thank you, God, for brothers and sisters, young and old, rich and poor, black and white. We thank you, Jesus, for each other. We thank you for each other. Thank you for each other, Lord. The family of God. family of God. Let's pray. This is not the end, but let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we're sorry we have fear of the unknown or different cultures has found a resting place in our hearts. We're sorry if any of our brothers and sisters have ever felt stared at, rejected, trampled on. Lord, we ask for your mercy and grace. And Lord, I pray that the Elam Church will be a prophetic testimony to the world. The people will know that we are your disciples because we really love one another. Lord, we need your mercy and your grace and your wisdom and help. Help us, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Please take your seats. Just coming back to the text. Back to the vulnerability of this young woman who had attracted the attention of the king. She felt inferior to others. And as a result of her inferiority, she felt resistant to his advances. Such feelings of inferiority can push people away. I remember a number of years ago, I met a guy on the streets in Exeter that had just arrived in the city. He had filled his life with such shame and disappointment that he lived in the north of England. He wrote a note to his family. He didn't feel he had the courage to take his life, but he thought his family would be better off without him. So he left them all his money and just took enough for a train ticket, bought a train ticket as far as the money would allow, and he got out at Exeter Station. And I met this guy, and he told me, some of his heartbreaking story. A few weeks later, he came into one of our Sunday morning services. 
And he took a seat and I hugged him before the service. But during the service, when the worship was taking place, I just got to the stage, I felt prophetically there to do something. And I took the mic and I said, church, I would love to introduce you to a new friend I've made recently. And I walked off the stage to where this man was standing. I know that if I had asked his permission, he would have said no. So I didn't ask his permission. And I knew that he felt completely unlovely. Like coming to church was a major step for him. And I hugged him. I said, this is, and I said his name. So he's had a tough time. We're not going to talk about his story. But I don't want him to leave this place without him experiencing love today. So I just reached out to the church and said, any men here that want to come and love this guy and offer to be his friend, I want you to come and hug him. I think every man in the place stood up and one by one hugged him. There were tears there that morning. That guy wept like a baby. So did a load of us. A few weeks later, that guy gave his life to Christ. He got baptized. He's now working. But when you feel unworthy and unlovable, you push people away. Though I am vulnerable, though I am dark, I am beautiful. See, the first was her understanding of her own identity. The second was her understanding of what the lover said about her. Though I am vulnerable, I am beautiful. But there's another thing that that sense of inadequacy, that sense of vulnerability, that sense of inferiority can do, as well as push the hugs or the love away, it can also try to push people down. Because what you do in order to try to deal with that sense of inadequacy is that you try to lower everyone else so at least you feel a bit better than others. So inadequacy pushes people away or pushes people down. I think I can say this because I love this family and I've been a part of this family for a long time and I've watched and you know in families every we've got three kids and every one of our kids has got different characteristics and different gifts and they're all beautiful and wonderful but they've all got this individuality about them but there are still some family traits they're all worried about baldness. <laughs> and of course, in the Elim family, there'll be all sorts of people. There'll be some very secure people here, some people who are really in an exciting place in their life and their ministry, and there'll be others who just feel like on the edge of burnout and struggling, and it'll be difficult. And we're all individuals. We've all got individual stories. But... I wonder if there is a family trait in Elim where we just don't feel as good as other people. I remember a number of years ago hearing about some changes that happened in Elim as Elim tried to carve its way into the world of respectable church. You see, we started out in the fires of revival passionate fires of revival. We were ostracized. We were pushed to the margins. We were rejected. We were chased sometimes. People were cast out of churches because they spoke in tongues. And you know, when you experience quite a lot of rejection, it can cause you to respond in certain ways. We're not the only movement to ever experience that. Been reading Biographies of Whitfield and Wesley, and I've seen the challenges they faced. I was reading that in Exodus, some of Whitfield's uh, 
preachers were pulled out of the church and taken outside and beaten. I was reading some of the stories of the Salvation Army where mobs, they had uniforms and all sorts. They would go and they would be problems and they would beat up and throw stones at the Salvation Army as they sought to pluck brands from the burning. We've, we're not the only movement and family that's experienced some rejection. But we were tongue-speaking. We, we were foreigners of women's ministry. Signs and wonders were part of our life and our heritage. And despite the rejection and the pushbacks and the discouragements and the chasing out of town, they kept, our predecessors kept going. They kept advancing. They kept stepping out. Fire and faith was everywhere. They hired, you know, ridiculous sort of venues. And miracles happened and God stepped in. And then respectability became a thing. As we try to fit in, ordination of women stopped. Later in our history, the term respectable Pentecostalism was introduced. And then go forward a few years, we're no longer the new thing. And then the new churches began to rise, the house churches, the charismatic churches. And some generations previously, we'd been ostracized as the new crazies, and now we were being ostracized as the old wineskins and the old wine. That sort of stuff can leave a mark on us. But I want to ask, who are we? Oh, we're dark, we're vulnerable, but we're beautiful. And we either draw our identity from our vulnerability, or we draw it from what the lover of our soul says over us. And if we don't resolve our insecurity, if we don't resolve the insecurity in our identity, it does one or two things. Sometimes we fluctuate between these two things. The first is we will hold back because we're inadequate. There are others who can do this better than us. So we hold back. That's why image and our understanding of who we are and our identity is important. And a fear resulting from our inadequacy will cause us to not step out in faith. But the second thing it can cause us to do is to strive in our own strength to prove our own inadequacy wrong. And that can cause us to kick down some doors that God's not opening. Some in this room, you've moved churches, not because the Spirit of God has led you, but because you thought it would feed your own insecurity and make you feel better about yourself. And it doesn't fix it, is it? Neither of those things are the way to resolve the identity crisis that we carry. Our identity impacts our actions and our decisions. Untamed insecurity in Elim will cause us to be a monument and not a movement. Movements require a wild generosity and insecure people do not flow with wild generosity. They pull in, they don't pour out. Movements require open hearts and hands. They empower, they release, they send. Movements require forward investment into future generations. They require an investment in others, raising others up who will go further than we've ever gone. Movements require stewardship, not ownership. It's not your church. It is not Elim's church. Ooh. Ooh. 
Sometimes when I travel around, people say to me, I hear things are going well at your church, Mark. And I say, I haven't got a church. And just for a moment, it looks like they feel slightly embarrassed because maybe they've walked onto a landmine of an awkward context and an awkward situation. <laughs> and after that, sort of recalibrating the awkwardness, they then say, I thought you were in Exeter. And I said, oh yeah, I'm in Exeter. But it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. He will build his church. And the moment we begin to treat it like it's our church, the moment it becomes an extension of our sense of inadequacy, the moment it becomes a project to feed the inadequacy within our life, that building a successful church is trying to work on our inner sense of being significant rather than on extending the kingdom. It changes how we do church. And movements require us to know who owns what. Movements require preferring one another. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Movements don't seek glory for themselves. They're too busy virally extending the kingdom with a big cause. You and I can't be a movement if we are living with an identity crisis. Though I am dark, though I am vulnerable, I am lovely. Elim, you are lovely. You're beautiful. I believe that's the tender whisper of the Lord over our hearts tonight. You are beautiful. Not perfect. Not having it all together. But Elim, you are lovely. Let's allow that to sink into our spirits for a moment. Let's understand how that determines the posture of our lives and the posture of our hearts. Nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing to compare ourselves with, just we are lovely. I've been thinking about the transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua. What a tough gig that was, eh? Following on from the man who walked with God. The one who led them with all those miracles out of Egypt to the promised land. The one who seemed to be the caterer, bringing down sort of the needs of the food and the manna and the water. The one who brought in the health and safety requirements into a community. The one who worked out the festivities. The one who decided their living quarters and their living locations. The one that set out their ways of approaching God. And then he's gone. Hello, Joshua. And God says this to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. So do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I've always read that in the past and thought, God's speaking about the battles that are ahead. But you know, before courage can be found on the battlefield, courage must be found in front of the mirror. And God's speaking to Joshua in front of the mirror right now. Yes, there's courage for the battles. Yes, there's courage for the victories. But Joshua, don't feel intimidated when you compare yourself to Moses. Don't feel inadequate. Don't feel vulnerable. Don't feel you've got to prove anything. Joshua, you are beautiful and I'm with you. I believe we are standing in a moment, a moment where we choose whether it will be the Elim Monument or the Elim Movement. Will we live in the revelation that the groom says over us, we are lovely, no pushing away, 
No pushing down. Just receive it. We are lovely. Lovely Elim. Beautiful bride. People of promise. All of us inexperienced in the current context. All of us face a new battles. We're stronger than we think we are. And we, if we will live out of the revelation of finding our identity from a place of intimacy with Christ, that strength will manifest in the glory of God being revealed through his bride on the earth. But you and I know if we're gonna find freedom from something, it isn't just getting a prayer moment and someone lays hands on you, that can happen. We've all been involved in seeing people delivered and set free. We've fasted and prayed over people. We've seen the Lord bring freedom. But you and I know to retain that freedom or sometimes even to step into it, it involves us living in the opposite spirit. And the opposite, because of what insecurity does, it causes to pull in, it causes us to bring close, it causes us to fear losing what we've got. It causes us to feel that our significance matters by what's in our hands when it matters just by hearing the voice of the Lord speak over our lives. You are beautiful. Insecurity causes us to pull in. But radical, wild generosity calls us to pour out. I was gathered with our staff team a few years ago when a new church had arrived in the city of Exeter. This church, beautiful church, lovely people, they arrived with an eye-watering budget that meant that they arrive and they've got a massive staff base and we're there 90 odd years in the city and I read a story, a parable it's the parable where the employer goes to the marketplace and he finds some workers in the morning. He says, if you come and work with me for the day, I'll give you a day's wages. So some people go back with him to work. And then throughout the day, the employer goes back to the marketplace and keeps recruiting new workers. Even to the point where there's some nearly towards the end of the day. And at the end of the day, when it's payment time, he goes to those that only did a really short shift and gives them a full day's wage. The people have been working all day, they're rubbing their hands thinking, if they're getting that, what are we getting? And they get the same, full day's wage. And they're like, that's not fair. We did so much more work than them. Here I am on my staff team reading this parable. I said, we've been in this city for over 90 years, contending for an awakening, contending for a revival, contending for a move of God. And here we are, we've got 24 seven prayer room, we're doing events over the area to say, God revive us. What happens if the church had just arrived, have a revival? Our response reveals whether our prayers for revival are really prayers for us to find significance or whether they're prayers for genuine revival. Because I think they're about significance a lot. That's why when we hear stories that a million Muslims are coming to Christ every year across the nations, when we hear of the global expansion of a church, and we're praying for revival. And our first response here in the UK is, oh, but God, do it here. What? There's a revival sweeping the nations of the earth. And we're, oh, but what about us? God, we want to be significant. We decided that day that we were gonna give that church the best welcome in the city. And if revival comes there, we're gonna celebrate it. And we're gonna give thanks to God for it. We're gonna support it. 
Am I going to cheer them on? And I believe generosity, radical generosity, breaks our crushed and often broken sense of identity. We are lovely, we are loved, we are stronger than we think we are, but we need to let go of our need to be significant personally. Some years ago, on one of my retreat days, I was sat by a stream in a remote part of Dartmoor. There was no one around apart from some of the Dartmoor ponies that occasionally came across my path. And I felt God really clearly ask me to do something. He asked me to step off the national leadership team of Elim. I journaled it. I said, yes, Lord, I'll do that. I didn't know why. I'll do that. I got home that evening. I sent the wonderful Chris Cartwright an email. I said, Chris, feel God saying this. Would you graciously at the next vote allow me to step down? I didn't understand why, but I found this. God often asks us to empty our hands before he fills them. Maybe there are things you are carrying that are more about your sticking plaster over your poor identity than they are about the assignments of the Spirit in your life. Maybe God's asking you to lay some stuff down. And it might feel like it's gonna cause a self-injury to yourself because you get so much from that, but no sacrifice is ever too much for the Lord. I love the way Robert Murray McShane captures this when he says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. I didn't know why God was asking me to lay some stuff down. But a few months later, I was walking past a section of, we've got a beautiful southwest coast path. It's 630 miles long and it goes through the counties of Dorset and Devon and Cornwall and Somerset. It's, it surrounds this county. And Nia and I were walking part of it and I just saw a picture. I saw a picture of this coast path filled with Christians praying at the same time and worshiping. I went back and spoke to some friends and we began to say, I wonder if we could see a 630 mile long prayer meeting. We launched it. Last year, three and a half thousand people gathered at the same time on that coast path and they surrounded the counties with a prayer of God, let your kingdom come. They blew chauffeurs, they blew instruments of all sorts of sounds and shapes. They used foghorns and they made a sound of hope across the Southwest. I don't know if that would have happened if I'd not said yes to laying down some stuff. God has stirred our hearts about church planting. Right now, although I feel vulnerable, even though I feel in many ways like I've got less resource than I've had for years, even though everything feels more shaky than it was, the corner's gone, the clock's gone, the crowd are dissipating, and yet I feel God asking us to invest in leaders to see a hundred churches planted in the southwest of the UK. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know that God can do anything. And I know that when we will allow our life to be shaped by his voice that says, you are beautiful, even if you never do a thing ever again, I know it fills us with courage. And I stand before you on one hand, deeply aware of my own weakness and frailty and at the same time knowing the Lord says you're beautiful and I've got some things for you to do. Elim, 
God has got some things for us to do. And he's not saying, come on, just get behind some initiatives of other people. He's saying, come on, I've got some assignments for you. I've got churches that need to be planted. Why do we plant more churches? You might say yours is half empty. Do you know 96% of the nation don't engage with a local church? Do you know that new churches, that the research suggests that people are four times more likely to accept an invitation to a new church than they are to an established church? If there's an awakening that we pray for, we're going to need a lot more churches. But if they have to be badged with your branding and your style, if they have to look like you, if they're ego projects, God will not be in that. We will become a monument. But if we will allow radical generosity to flow through our lives and say, do you know what? I'm fed up of having bored Christians sitting in my congregation. I'm going to send them out. And if it means on a Sunday, we're only a third full, but we've got two thirds of them out serving Jesus and causing new missions to happen, then it's worth it. We have to get away from the intoxication of being in large gatherings. Your Sunday service is not about your value. The statistics that you fill in for Elim are not about your value. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And you're stronger than you think you are. Steve Addison in his book, Pioneering Movement, says that he believes every believer can plant a church. Some of you are looking around your congregations, your mind's eye now and taking dispute with that. Okay, let's split it. Let's say 50% of them can. How are you going to mobilize them? How are you going to invest in them and release them? We're almost landing here. Take that one off your bingo. God's given a plan. It's called the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the shepherd, and the teacher. Hi, my name's Bob and I'm an evangelist. Hello, Pastor Bob. <laughs> Hi, my name's Lisa and I'm a prophet. Hello, Pastor Lisa. <laughs> Don't you dare suggest you're an apostle. <laughs> you arrogant, <laughs> self-serving individual. How dare you? Of course, all the apostles have gone to all the other countries with the demons, haven't they? <laughs> the apostles are not in our, just in our platforms. They're in our congregations, you know. There are thousands of them in Elim. There are thousands of prophets. Some of them stand up and they say, thus saith the Lord. Some of them have gentle words for people. Some of them turn tables of injustice over in our communities. And they say, that's not God's heart. This needs to change. God gave the fivefold ministry to equip the saints for works of service and to bring us to maturity. And there's a restoration happening. And if we are insecure... If we need other people to be like us, pastors, some of the things that we need in our churches are radical prophets that will scare the life out of you. As Rachel said this morning, the prophets come to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Some of our churches, no, that's, that's way too generous. All of our churches need the prophetic. They need the apostolic. Otherwise, we're building our project and not the Lord's. Because the apest, the apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, shepherd and teacher is a part of the extension of the character and the ways of God. Jesus was apostolic at times. Jesus was a shepherd at times. He was a teacher. He was an evangelist. He was a prophet. 
It's the character of God. And whose body is the church? It's like we're managing without three vital organs in our lives. If I asked you, which three vital organs in your life could you live without? And yet, we've been limping along for years with pastors and teachers. And there's nothing wrong with that. The pastors are a gift of God. And some of, some of you pastors, you're feeling deeply inadequate because we keep talking about leadership, but what we do, we're mixing a little bit of the apest in. And we're trying to tell shepherds how to be entrepreneurial leaders. And we don't need you to do that. We need you to be shepherds, but you need the prophetic and the apostolic around you. You need them around you. So bring them in. And just because they muck things up for you, that's exactly what you need. Because it's boring. You need them. If we want to be a movement, not a monument, we've got to be incredibly generous towards one another's gifts. 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through, your generos through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We know that God blesses generosity. We often quote that financially. But when we make it our focus to bless what God is doing in each other's lives, to bless what God is doing around the nations, to bless what God is doing when that new church plant arrives in your city or your town or your village, to bless what God is doing and not to hold back. That when someone comes to you and says, I wanna do something for Jesus, don't make your highest objective to add them to the coffee rotor. Our vision has been too small. Movements require generous men and women to empower and release others, not to hold and control. So, the Elim movement or the Elim monument, your identity, my identity, our identity determines the answer. Will we give, 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 and go, go, go? Or will we hold, 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 and stay, stay, stay? I am dark, but I am lovely, and so are you. You are stronger than you think you are. The God of victory is with you. Step forward and don't be intimidated by the enemy's strategies against you. You may feel vulnerable, but you are lovely. Let's pray together. Father, I know that if we were to have a moment now, we said, you put your hand up or stand or come to the front if you want to be part of a movement, not a monument, we'd all, we'd all be there. But this is more than a desire and intention. It's going to take a determination for us to live in the opposite spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray that there will be a wild abandon of generosity that fills our churches. We would be desperate to give away, to sow, to release, to send, to empower, to raise up. Lord Jesus, we need you. We don't have in our hands what's needed, but we've got this promise that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to his completion. So may confidence arise in who we are in you. 
Jesus' name. Lord is my shepherd. Lord is my shepherd. He goes before me. He goes before me. Defender behind me. Can home 